0: Hello, I'm Matt Cholley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, another exit interview... Because the number of MPs standing down at the next election just keeps on rising. Today, Nikki Aitken, who was only elected as Tory MP for the cities of London and Westminster in 2019. She tells me why she's quitting and has a few parting shots for some of her former bosses on the way out. Before that, we'll have the columnists today, Rachel Sylvester and Tom McTague on the state of political discourse. What is Nick Clegg up to and what's the point of regional cabinets? And if you like what you hear on the podcast, don't forget you can join me for Politics Without the boy mitz live on times radio listen for free on your dab radio on your smart speaker or download the times radio app that's politics without the boring bits weekdays from 10 we begin with news that the speaker of the commons is accused of bad faith and siding with one team you have to confront and defeat the enemy you are a traitor and you should be banished until eternity
1: I'm glad you're not God. Now, you speak very eloquently, and unfortunately, this is not Parliament, so you could bring it down a notch and just get to the point, and we would really appreciate it. In the case of me, I am a faithful.
0: Yes, that's John Burko on the U.S. traitors, where a group of people who know nothing sit around accusing each other of bad faith, fueled entirely. My self-interest. Well, in unrelated news, Sir Lindsay Hoyle is facing a big test of his authority again this week as he tries to bring the woodwork class back into line. Don't touch the layer. Yeah, will, will there be more calls for him to go? We'll keep an eye on that. Also facing questions about over his grip on the naughty kids, Rishi Sunak. He's got Liz Truss playing up on her school trip to America, saying she wants to...
2: Make sure the will of the people was delivered.
0: Yeah, well, a quick look at the polls from October 2022 shows exactly what the will of the people was. 71% of the will of the people said she was doing badly as PM. Then after she left number 10, 79% the will of the people said she was right to resign.
2: We essentially need... A bigger bazooka.
0: Yeah, she'll probably shoot herself in the foot with that as well. And close to home, the other naughty boy, Liz, An- Lee Anderson. Liz Anderson. It's a terrifying mash-up between the two of them. Lee Anderson has caused uproar with his comments to his employers at GB News for claiming that Islamists had got control of Sadiq Khan and London. Well, the Prime Minister has done a round of interviews on the local BBC radio this morning and he's very clear about the line to take. Here he is on BBC Radio York. I think it's incumbent on all of us, especially those elected to Parliament, not to inflame our debates in a way that's harmful to others. Lee's comments weren't acceptable, they were wrong, and that's why he's had the whip suspended. And then here he is giving a totally different natural answer to BBC Radio Humber.
3: The sound of Northern Lincolnshire and East Yorkshire is BBC
4: Radio Humberside.
0: I think it's incumbent on all of us, particularly those elected to Parliament, not to inflame our debates in a way that's harmful to others. The comments that were made were not acceptable, they were wrong, and that's why the whip was withdrawn from the person in question. (laughs) Completely different. Completely different. Completely different. So that was him on Radio York and Radio Hum uh, uh, Radio Humberside. Just just to be clear, can we can we
4: play them together? The sound of the future future and easier easier. is radio, radio humble.
0: I, I think, think it's incumbent, incumbent on, on all of us, us, us especially those elected to parliament, to parliament not to not inflame our debates in a way that's harmful to others These comments weren't or the they
5: were wrong why, and that's he's why the whip, suspended. Suspended. The whip was withdrawn
0: The Columnists Yes and I'm joined as ever on a Monday by Rachel Alvest here hello Rachel hello Matt uh, no Libby posts today but we've got Tom McTague the political editor of H- unheard. hello Tom Hello. Uh, good to have you with us. Uh, let's kick off with the cheery prospect of the state of our politics. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of debate over the weekend about uh, what Lee Anderson's been saying and uh, the SMP's approach to the situation in Gaza. Uh, before all of that, I spoke to uh, Nikki Aitken for the exit interview, which is coming up uh, a bit later on. Another MP standing down. Here's, here's the Tory MP Nikki Aitken on the state of our politics.
3: Just how nasty things have become... And how black and white things have become. I think discourse, political discourse, is, is is at risk in this country, to be honest, Matt. I think what is happening in the Middle East at the moment has really brought that to the forefront.
0: So, actually, Rachel, she was speaking before what happened in the Commons last Wednesday, because we've been doing these exit interviews in advance. Is political discourse at risk or is it just a particular moment and it will pass?
2: No, I think it is. And I think the really worrying thing is how many people are going to be put off going into politics and the quality of MPs is going to fall even further. You know, if you look at the death threats that... Uh, MPs receive the rape threats that female MPs receive, the sort of requirement for these kind of black and white views, um, as Nikki Aitken can explain, that you've got to sign up to your party, you know, do or die. There's no room for nuance or uh, opinion, um, and I think that then, then you listen to sort of Lee Anderson and the degrading, really, of political discourse and how how people speak. It's not just the dog whistle,
0: yeah. his
2: comments. It's a kind of dog klaxon.
0: What do you make of it, Tom? And what I suppose what can we do about it? Getting the genie back in the bottle is going to be difficult.
6: Yeah, I think it's very difficult because, I mean, one of the problems we have right now is that every party seems quite um, nervous and desperate. So you've got the Conservative Party, which knows it's on course for a potentially huge defeat. The SNP are worried about their position in Scotland, and Labour have a kind of fear that they're going to uh, not uh, not win, and that actually there's a kind of fragility over this issue uh, in Gaza in particular. So all of them are, are behaving in in ways that kind of reveal their own political uh, desperation. You know, the SNP and the Tories coming together to really ultimately to try and embarrass uh, the Labour Party. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. But I would say I, I do think this this is a uh, a long-term thing. I, we, we've always had this. I was reading um, a book by uh, J.B. Priestley about Edwardian Britain, and this was supposed to be this period of, well, you know, uh, dinner party or, you know, garden parties and, uh, and, and the like when everyone... Uh, was uh, friendly to each other and it was vitriolic over <laughs> suffragettes empire all of these things people calling each other. i mean there was there was armed insurrection in northern ireland uh effectively treason uh, so so these things i think are, are have been going on for a long long time
2: Uh, the the interesting thing is I think Tom's absolutely right all the parties are playing politics at the moment for their own advantage because of their sort of anxiety or their nervousness it's all about the election and actually that just alienates the voters still more so the irony is the, the politicians who could rise above it and give a sort of less partisan approach would be more popular but they're all shooting themselves in the foot for this kind of short-term political advantage, which actually is undermining uh, the reputation of politics more generally. I
0: suppose there's a particular sort of alliance of events that have come together, that the the situation in the Middle East, Israel and Gaza, uh, combined with... The Labour Party doing much better in the polls, which, you know, has given the SNP a reason to go after them and to exploit this, you know, to try to bolster their support on the left. And then is also given a reason for the right to then hit back with that. So you've got this sort of swirling sort of dog whistle on both sides about a foreign affairs issue that lots of people just think is a terrible situation and they don't really want to pick sides, but are being sort of forced in a partisan way to, to pick sides, while everyone pretends they're being high minded and concerned about the issues at hand, you know, and it's, you know, it's, they, they, it's a, it's a high minded foreign affairs issue, and it's just not, it's just dirty politics.
2: Yeah, and the contrast between that sort of dirty politics and the tragedy unfolding in the Middle mm. East, um, you know, is so apparent. Uh, but I think there's a sort of choice for politicians. Do they appeal to the voters' best instincts or their worst instincts? Um, and at the moment, ahead of an election, it seems to be all about the worst instincts. Um, and I think in the end, that backfires.
0: Um, Tom, is it possible that everything get, could get dialed down after a change of government? Is it particularly something about the desperation of the, the end of a long period of one party's dominance?
6: I definitely think that's true. Uh, and there, there, you can see that there is a kind of cross-party consensus in a way, weirdly, on, on this issue. I and mean, if you, is there much of a difference between David Cameron, Lord Cameron's view on the situation in Gaza and uh, and Keir Starmer's view? I don't think there is hardly any difference between those two positions. And therefore, you know, between Sunak's position and Starmer's position. So there's, there's, a, there's room here for uh, things to calm down. I would say, though, that I think with the Labour Party... They do have a, a longer term problem here. You, know, you can imagine a situation where there is another crisis in the, in the Middle East when Keir Starmer is prime minister. His room for manoeuvre on this is very, very slight. Now, if you think about Tony Blair, he was brought down in the end um, by his decision to to give full-throated support to israel uh in its its then war uh in in lebanon from, from memory and and this was the trigger now he of course he would have gone anyway but this was the this was the trigger now the situation is much more volatile now mm-hmm. uh, than it was then and kia is not yet even prime minister and he is really struggling to hold his party together even though he's 20 points ahead in the polls so just cast your mind forward and think there's an economic problem, you know, there's some kind of political crisis, and then you have another crisis in the Middle East. You could see how it could very quickly become difficult for um, for, for a Keir Starmer government, particularly if you have an aggressive uh, leader of the opposition, uh, a, a sort of Kemi Badenoch yeah. or Suella Bravman, uh, going after him on this question.
0: We'll really be fascinated to see how uh, how it does play out. And obviously this week is going to probably, you know, be the worst of everyone involved again. Um, let's move on, because I'm really interested to talk about Nick Clegg. Tom, you've written a great piece about what Nick Clegg's been up to. Here he is talking recently to the US broadcaster, CNBC.
1: What can you tell us about, about these reports that tech companies like Meta are going to get together to try to ensure election safety?
0: It's going to be essential that the big tech companies that either um, uh, build the tools which allow people to generate AI-generated content and or distribute that content on their platforms should work together as much as possible. So, Tom, what is he up to? It's a great piece that you've uh, you've produced today. Um, but what, uh, not least, there's a terrific line in the very beginning about how, oh, where is it, um, talking about his... Uh, when he lost. He said, no longer an MP after being unceremoniously dumped from Parliament in 2017 by a bar manager now in jail for fraud. Um, uh, Because obviously that's (laughs) what happened in Sheffield Hallam. What is Nick Clegg up to? Is he all-powerful? Somebody described him as the, the foreign secretary for Facebook.
6: Yeah, that's right. When you, when you talk to people in government, they, they say that that's effectively what it feels like to deal with Nick Clegg because he is one of the most senior figures now at Meta, uh, which is the, the parent company of uh, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. And this, the scale of this company really is hard to to get your head around. They have something like 4 billion people use Facebook, and therefore they get their news from facebook and then they communicate with each other uh, on whatsapp and on instagram and he is in some ways I was trying to think of what he is like in a a kind of governmental system. He's almost like the cabinet secretary and the foreign secretary rolled into one. So his job is to to deal with the governance uh, issues at Facebook. And it's almost like he's running a...
4: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business. Whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once, or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
6: Country. This is a company with which is worth one trillion dollars. It's absolutely enormous, with vast influence across uh, across borders, and he is in charge of the governance, how it how it how it, um, how it works internally, what kind of rules it has, and it's to protect Mark Zuckerberg from the political fallout that he is, that he suffered after the Cambridge Analytica, Analytica scandal in in twenty eighteen. Um, and and it's to interact with uh, foreign governments so the eu india you know there's pictures on uh, on his twitter of him interacting with the indian government and it really is like he is the visiting head of state uh, so his <laughs> his job is really really important and i think the crucial thing is it the decisions that he makes as uh, in this position as president of global affairs at meta have a direct impact on us here so for instance over the weekend they lowered the um the age um which you can use whatsapp i mean it's kind of absurd because kids must be using whatsapp all the time from (laughs) 16 uh 16 to 13 um but there's two big problems on 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 meta one is fraud and it's absolutely vast 10 percent of all crime in the uk that's all crime happens on a meta platform. And then there's this child sexual exploitation, which is a huge problem. And British governments are really struggling to know what to do. How do you impose British law on a company that is so much bigger than Britain? It's a real yeah. a fundamental democratic question here.
0: What do you make of uh, Nick Clegg's all powerful role, uh, uh, Meta? Well, I,
2: think, I think it's fascinating. If you think back to the Rose Garden press conference that David Cameron and Nick Clegg did at the start of the coalition and it was that love in the bromance between the two of them. David Cameron's come back into government as Foreign Secretary. Nick Clegg arguably is far more powerful now as this kind of Foreign Secretary for Meta. (laughs) Um, And I think it's really interesting how they've chosen to try and rehabilitate themselves, if you like. Tom's got a very good line in his piece about how Cameron has come back into government to try and launder his reputation and Nick Clegg's gone to Meta to try and basically sold himself to launder yeah. someone else's reputation. So, at one level, he is all-powerful, but at the other level, he isn't. Because actually, yeah. what has he done yeah. to protect children, for example, from these awful um, websites that uh, and social media posts that are still... Uh, available, what's he actually done to change the way in which Meta operates? Um, and, uh, you know, ha- does he actually really have any control yeah. over that? Or is, is he, he just. Is it a smoother face? It a smoother face? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, it's a great piece, Tom. You can read that online at uh, unheard.com. Um, uh, it's, well, it's well worth reading because it's right, right romp through what Nick Clegg's been up to. Now, Rishi Sunak has taken his cabinet to Yorkshire for the day. Now, I remember when regional cabinets became a thing under Gordon Brown. <laughs> Uh, former chancellor became prime minister. Not that popular in the polls, so he decided to take the cabinet around the country to try and turn things around. What's the point? How do you organise one of these? Well, I'm really excited about this. We can speak to Garth Davis, who was the uh, regional press officer in Number 10, who I used to speak to a lot when I worked for the Western 1 News. And he helped all organise exactly these uh, things uh, for Gordon Brown. Hi, Garth. Hello, good morning. Yeah, good to see you, Matt, and kind of an also for David Cameron. I worked for a year for the coalition as yes, well. Yes, of course. Yes, we were so, you were civil servant. You were civil You're there for all of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, what's the point of a regional cabinet, do you think? And how hard is it to organise?
5: Well, look, I mean, I think they are about, you know, kind of connecting in the kind of regions, kind of regional engagement, kind of communities, kind of regional media interviews, which I'll come on to say a little bit about. But I mean, I, I think a, a few key points, you know, kind of I'd make, I mean, so, you know, kind of what they were like, you know, kind of operationally, I think they are quite difficult to organise. I mean, I remember, you know, trying to organise sort of 10 to 15 kind of different regional visits from, you know, for the PM and, and cabinet ministers, you know, trying to coordinate, you know, kind of the visits, the messages, the media opportunities, you know, there was coordination of of transport. You know, I remember kind of efforts to try and get kind of PM and cabinet to, to travel by train, which, by the way, I think they should do a lot more like, of to see the state of public transport. Um, and I think, you know, there were also kind of security issues. And you know, security issues were significant. Uh, and I remember stories at the, at the time, you know, kind of around the kind of the costs of the policing and the resources uh, and, and the cost of taking uh, kind of the cabinet out to, a, out to a region. I mean, I think politically, I was going to say, I mean, they are quite kind of risky as well. You know, kind of not everyone is thrilled to be in a way day with a boss. You know, I think as has happened today, you know, kind of the media don't necessarily want to talk about, you know, the kind of the story that the PM or the government want to want to talk about. They're looking for kind of images, pictures, you know, kind of ways to show government splits and problems. And I think, you know, as you alluded to, I think there was a lot of kind of accusations that they were, you know, kind of electioneering, kind of political campaigning, you know, kind of, you know, probably no coincidence, you know, kind of where the government is, you know, kind of doing regional cabinets and kind of rounds of regional media interviews. I mean, I do think. I mean, for Michael, just just of finally on the on the regional media engagement side, you know, I think you know, kind of in those days we did public meetings with regional newspapers, local newspapers, local radio stations, you know, kind of where you know there was a kind of real partnership, and a kind of opportunity for the kind of public to kind of ask, kind of you know, kind of you know, good probing questions of the PM, which I think is you know right. They were kind of visits that you know where I felt you could you know genuinely listen to kind of teachers, business leaders doctors, students, et cetera. Um, and I don't think you have to hold regional cabinets to do that, but I think, you know, the kind of government could do worse than, you know, kind of actually kind of, you know, listening and engaging much more in the regions and doing rounds of regional media, media interviews, which are, are kind of, as you can see, quite challenging for PM. But I think kind of right, I think it's to better policies and probably better economic kind of policies as well.
0: What do you think of this, Tom? Because it, it, there is always a sort of slight it, as part of the doom loop of a party, which is lo- you know losing in the polls. The, you know they they say first of all that the, the prime minister's going to go out and meet people, but put every voter individually, shake them by the hand. Then they also say we're going to do more regional media; they're more trusted than the national media. We're going to do more regional media, and actually, consistently, we've seen that the, it's not a soft touch. And and the real risk of having two dozen cabinet ministers in one place at one time, is they all end up saying different things to different people, and it, you know, and it's it doesn't land the message they want to.
6: Yeah, I've got to say I'm pretty dubious about this. I just don't, I just can't see how it has much impact at all. I mean, if it was formalized, if it was, if there was a kind of structure to this where uh, the British government was asserting its Britishness rather than its Englishness and held meetings regularly in Edinburgh and Cardiff and Belfast, uh, then, then that would be one thing, but it just—it's a little bit like levelling up. It just seems so ad hoc and unplanned, and no real strategic thought. That oh, put stick a government agency in Darlington, or <laughs> stick a government agency in Halifax, or whatever. That it, it just—it's not—it's not thought through. It's not like these are bad things for Halifax or Darlington. It's just that. it it just seems like a political thought more than anything. Yeah. What do you think, Rachel?
2: I agree, actually. I think it's a gimmick, a pre-election gimmick. And the problem is it sort of assumes that people in different parts of the country somehow have... Different interests, um, but going to uh, York and re-announcing some money for local transport isn't going Midlands. to in the middle isn't <laughs> yeah. going to change anything. And actually, everyone in all parts of the country is worried about the cost of living crisis. They're worried about the um, NHS. They're worried about the trains not working. Um, and as as Rishi Sunak discovered, they're worried about some comments that are racist from the former deputy chairman of the Tory party. So. Kind of pretending that you can target your messages to a very narrow geographical audience is misguided and foolish.
0: Did you have to... Uh, Garth, when you were organising, did you have to sort of... Because, you know, I know it's uh, um, a wage thing to imagine, but not all cabinet ministers get on with each other. Do they all travel together on a bus? How do you get them around the country?
5: <laughs> I remember they did different visits in different parts of the region and then sort of travelled in. I think some did kind of visits together and then came in. But, yeah, I mean, I, I remember... The sort of you know the thing you know what's the photo what's the photo opportunity you know kind of as you go, know, you know kind of camera's looking to kind of look you know kind of a disgruntled or kind of a, or, or split in some way but but yeah I, I haven't seen the the photos from today but you know kind of you know we'll see i guess they'll be looking for those particularly kind of for the political story of the day
0: yeah absolutely and who, who gets the good who gets the sexy visit and who get you know who's who's got the high vis on driving a digger and who's pointing at a bus stop uh, which are obviously all very important issues
2: I saw Mark Harper has a Transport Secretary high-vis jacket they all got their they got personalised their own personalised ones, ones. Well, well,
0: that's ones. an FOI request can we yeah. get that in uh, we'll find out how much that's costing. <laughs> Tom McTague from Unheard and Rachel Sylvester from The Times and don't forget you can get a subscription to The Times at thetimes.co.uk and if you've got your subscription then just link it up with your Apple subscription and you'll get a bonus episode of Politics Like The Boring Bits every week up next it's another Exit Interview
1: Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing, so we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
4: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing
1: We've
6: already said
0: Nicola Jane Aitken is leaving us soon Goodbye in 1969, she was first elected as Conservative MP for the cities of London and Westminster. In 2019, now she's leaving. In her exit interview, she describes being the MP for MPs.
3: Yes, and I do get casework from MPs. They're usually about council tax.
0: The effect of increasing threats against politicians. Political
3: discourse is at risk in this country.
0: And she delivers her verdict on former bosses Boris Johnson. Chaotic. Liz
3: Truss. Overpromoted. I'm remortgaging at the moment. Thanks, Liz.
0: And Rishi Sunak. Honourable. So, Nikki Aiken, thank you for joining me for your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question Why are you leaving?
3: Well, because my husband has got a job overseas and uh, my youngest child leaves school this summer, finishes A level. So he'll be going off, hopefully, to college. So uh, it seems like th- the perfect timing that I don't really want to be left at home alone, to be honest. And so I thought I would go and support my husband.
0: It's not because you thought you might lose your seat?
3: I don't think I would lose my seat. I think I would win my seat. And I don't want that to sound arrogant, because it probably does. Um, But I have been told by several pollsters that they thought that I would win because I have very much worked my constituency. Every pledge I made in 2019, I have kept. And I've succeeded in the campaigns I promised I would uh, I would lead. Um, and I'm very much known in Westminster. I'm a local person. My Labour and Lib Dem candidates are not local. They come from outside Westminster in particular. So, look, you could never say never, but I think Westminster and the City of London would will be retained by the Conservatives.
0: What about the fact that, and i take on board your husband's got a job abroad, but, you know, we, I spoke to Steve Bryan, one of your colleagues yeah. a couple of weeks ago, and he said he's not standing down because he thought he might lose, he's standing down because he's worried he might win. <laughs> and that actually being in opposition mm. uh, in a rumble a Tory party with probably a lot of colleagues who you don't necessarily share their politics despite sharing the, the party... Is that played a part in it at all? If the Tories were 20 points ahead in the polls, you were on course for a majority, you were heading for the cabinet, you'd probably stay, wouldn't you?
3: Look, I have thought about this because I never, ever thought I would not stand. Mm. Uh, I didn't think I'd stand for a third term. I thought I always thought I would stand for two terms because it, it is exhausting. I mean, it is fascinating. The more you get involved in it, the more you want to do it. But I think two terms is enough. And I'm 55. You know, I'd be 60. That would be plenty for me. But
0: 20 years younger than the US president.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and and, and his opponent, but I'm think I'm like over ten years older than the prime minister. But no, I think I I do think this is I, I would have done another term, but. And I'm not. I'm not going to be home alone. My children left home. My husband will have had. uh, You know, has got a really excellent opportunity over in the UAE. And so I think it's time for me to support him. He has been the most amazing support to me over the last 18 years. And I have been doing this for 18 years, not just as an MP, but I was a councillor at Westminster, in the cabinet there, then the leader. So I have been, you know, very much in, in frontline politics in Westminster for 18 years. And I think it's time that I supported Alex.
0: Is it a funny job being the MP for Westminster? is it, yeah. Is it easier? Because, I mean, you're not travelling from the Outer Hebrides every week and, you know, your life is all in one place. Uh, but you are the MP for all MPs.
3: Yes, and I do get casework from MPs. Believe me, usually what, what do they complain about usually about council tax and oh, trying really? to get. Um, well, usually because they haven't they haven't received their bill. Or I had a Labour MP come up to me last week and wanting help with his lifts. So I, so I am. But look, I, I never leave my constituency. I live and work here, and I have lived in my constituency for twenty seven years, I think. But it's an honour to do it. It's I really do love this place. People always think central London, you know, it's it's for the strangers. It's not. It's It's neighbourhoods, it's communities, it's people who care about their local areas. And, and, you know, I have a a monthly call with resident associations. There's about 20, 25 people on there from across the constituency. And they're passionate about their local areas and working with me to to improve it. So I'm really going to miss my constituency more than anything else. I will miss the people, I will miss the constituency. I'm not sure I will miss the, you know, the... The the, the the you know the, the politics of it all, which is you know has surprised me somewhat over the last couple of years. What do you mean by that? Just how nasty things have become, and how black and white things have become. I think. Discourse, political discourse, is 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 at risk in this country. To be honest, Matt, I think what is happening in the Middle East at the moment has really brought that to the forefront. And I've had what's shocked me more than anything else is over the last few months, I've had thousands of emails, and I'm not exaggerating. And I and I think most MPs have had thousands of emails about the situation in Gaza, and people are rightly concerned. You know, nobody should not be concerned about what the what we're seeing, what's going on in Gaza, but. Nobody in those emails, I can recall, has mentioned the hostages, has mentioned what actually happened on the, on the 7th so, of October. These
0: emails about the situation in yeah, Gaza. the ceasefire. And why are you doing more... Yeah, yeah, yeah. and
3: stopping... Um, you so know. it's
0: what you'd characterise as pro-Palestinian emails. Yeah.
3: yeah. And I've met people, I've met constituents who want to talk about the situation, and I'm more happy to talk about the situation. But they never mention the hostages. and They never mention what happened on the 7th of October. And I've, I chose not to go and watch the uh, you know that we've been offered MPs and many MPs have across the house have watched the filming that the Hamas terrorists took themselves of what they were actually doing on the 7th of October I chose not to watch that because I don't think you can ever unsee it but I've heard testimony and I've met families of hostages and I think too often we have forgotten what actually happened on the 7th of October. No matter what you think about the two-state solution and what's happening in the past, I went to the West Bank back in 22 and I was shocked at how many Israeli settlements there are in the West Bank. I think I was quite ignorant about the situation. Um, And I also went to the IDF uh, facility right next to Gaza, which monitors the fence so I was really shocked when it actually happened on the 7th of October because you know from what I had seen you couldn't move an inch along that fence without being seen so there are questions to be answered by the Israeli government but I do think that it has become so black and white and it never is nothing is ever black and white and I think I do get worried about meeting students particularly um, Jewish students over the last couple of months who uh, are too scared to actually admit they're Jewish. And how have we got to this stage in this country where you are hiding your identity? I had a group of school children come and visit back in November. I mean, they were primary school teach- uh, uh, people. They were like nine, ten-year-old boys, all wearing baseball caps. And I said to their teacher, why are they wearing baseball caps? And they said, because they have, they've got to hide their kippers, their skull caps. These were British-born children in a British school visiting the British Parliament hiding their identities how have we got to this stage and i absolutely have no issue with people protesting on a saturday we had one you know last saturday with tens of thousands of people who are very concerned and you know i share their concerns about what's going on in gaza i want it to stop i don't think there's an mp in parliament who doesn't want it to stop but we have got to ensure that we remember that it's never black and white. There's mm. always... You don't have to
0: pick a side on everything. No. You and... can think that what happened on October the 7th was terrible and, and what's exactly. happening in Gaza was terrible.
3: Yeah, exactly. And they are both equally, equally terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's innocent people caught, and up, children yeah. and women and, and men who are civilians who are being, you know, maimed, killed, made homeless from this. Um, and, and, you know, n- neither side will ever be a winner, sadly.
0: You talked about how the, you'd noticed that in the last year or two the political discourse had changed. I wondered whether you which you preferred being an m p for Westminster or being the council leader you know is is there one job do you have more levers to pull in one job or the other?
3: They're very different. I mean, I think that was a bit of a lesson for me when I turned up you know having been the leader and what I wanted happened, and then realizing very very quickly that you're just basically vote vote fodder really um And look, I love both jobs. They're both very different. And I have, I think, just learned over the last four or five years now that how you can achieve. And everything I promised I would do, short-term lets, registration, the government has announced that. You know, leasehold reform, government is working on that now. And also, you know, my infamous, probably almost legendary, pedicabs bill.
0: (laughs) This is is registering pedicabs, which are the noisy things which whip yeah. off tourists in Central Island. Exactly.
3: And you know, I've had two private members' bills. It was my biggest campaign issue for my local area. Look, you know, not we're talking we're not talking about the economy and, and crime. Obviously those are national and local issues. But for my specific issue is pedicabs. They are a nightmare for local people and local businesses and they're not registered or licensed and anybody can drive them. They're not and, and the vehicles are not checked and there's no fair structure. So you get dreadful examples of tourists being ripped off 100 200 quid Mm. to go half a mile so I was determined to get them licensed I had two private members bills they didn't get through because you know we all know it's notoriously hard to get a private Mm. members bill even with the government's backing Um, and then um, dear old Boris remember him Uh, he was really keen for me to succeed and I remember one one Saturday morning, I was up early for some reason, and I got a text from him, when he was Prime Minister, and it was like, how are you getting on with pedicabs? And I said, nowhere, because it keeps getting thrown out. And he said, leave it with me. And a couple of hours later, he sent another text. I've sorted it. Speak to Grant, chaps. It's going to be in the transport bill. Wow. Wow. Great, thank you. Unfortunately, a bit of a, bit of a uh, fly in the ointment was that he then resigned um, yeah and the transport bill why, why did left he take
0: if he had a friday night out and been ripped off is that why he had any uh, in? mayor of london oh yeah you know
3: he I mean, know he knew, he he knew right and right. it's uh, i'm not going to bore your listeners with the plights of, of the pedicab legislation but it's it's only in london you can't register them yeah, or yeah, license because them it's, because it's a it's an anomaly of the 1864 act or something um so he, he was very really supportive and then he went and then rishi came in so they'd like to start again and and Bless Rishi and bless the guys from number 10. Understood. And then gave me the pedicabs bill in the King's speech.
0: A bill will be introduced to deal with the scourge of unlicensed pedicabs in London.
3: And it's coming through now.
0: We'll hopefully pass them before you... Before you stand down,
3: well, it's, it's going to the Commons in the next week or so.
0: I wanted to ask you what the mood is like amongst Tory MPs because so many of you have announced you're standing down for all sorts of reasons. Some who've been MPs for a long time, others who, like you, were only elected in 2019 and are, are getting out the first available opportunity. What's it like? What is the mood? Among, is, do you feel like you're part of a gang of the standing downers? Are you in a,
3: a WhatsApp group? No, there's no WhatsApp. I'm in enough WhatsApp groups, I don't need any more, thanks. <laughs> no, I think, look, I think you're right. I think lots of people are, are leaving for completely different reasons. So I'm, I'm leaving of personal reasons you know Deanna's leaving for the personal reasons but a lot of people are leaving because they've been there 10-15 years and it is a tough life and if you've been a minister and you've done 10-15 years I can understand that actually if there is a possibility and it's a still an if that we will be in opposition then do you want to be an opposition MP when you've been in government mm. and many people have been in opposition government and now who knows yeah. so I can understand it is a it can be, you know, a, 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 such a... I don't want to sound like I'm getting the violins out, because it's, you know, it is a privilege to be one of the 650 people. And look,
0: but so Some people be shouting at the radio. You're supposed to be there regardless. You can't just be, like, goal-hanging for being in government. The, the no, The politics exactly. should be about, you know, you want to be the local MP, you yeah. want to be in Parliament making a difference and all yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, and that's, the, and that's how
3: you should be there. You should be there. But if you've done it, mm. and you've been a minister... I can understand why people would... they out now, yeah. I would be standing again if it wasn't for my family's circumstances. Mm. I can promise you that. It's just, you know, sometimes life throws you a curveball yeah. and, and, and you just got to grab it.
0: So you haven't been a minister, but you have been both a vice chairman and a deputy chairman of the Conservative Party. And a BPS. You came on our end-of-year quiz. <laughs> yeah. And halfway through <laughs> the end-of-year quiz, you, yeah. you, you revealed that I'd been wrong to keep describing you as the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party. So... What are the differences in the jobs? What do they involve? And why are you no longer Deputy Chair of the Conservative Party?
3: Well, I was Vice Chairman under Boris. And then I resigned because I was just sick to death of all the party gay and I just didn't want to be part of it. I just I just wanted to be free and say, not in my name, gov. And, you know, I did tell him why I was standing down. And, you know, th- he accepted it. Well, how in, you take that? You know, he, he, he accepted it. Um, and then um, I was appointed... I mean, I was shocked to be appointed under Liz Truss. I think I was one of a few of Rishi's supporters who got given a job, and then kept on by Rishi when Rishi took over. What three or four weeks afterwards, mm. and the deputy chairman is a paid role. You get paid. A vice chairman, you don't get paid, uh, and then you do have a lot more responsibility as as, as deputy because you are standing in for the chairman. And you know, I, I was actually deputy chairman in between Nadim. Sahari and Greg Hands, we had about a month, I think, three weeks between the two of them. Well, Uh, Nadine standing down and Greg being appointed so then I just stepped in and did a lot more for CCHQ and look I mean I love being Deputy Chairman but because it's a payroll position you have to then vote with the government you can't be uh, you can't put down amendments to bills etc and I wanted the freedom particularly in the last year of the Parliament I wanted the freedom to be able to put down amendments and try and change legislation like particularly the leasehold bill that's coming up um, the criminal justice bill that's coming up and I wouldn't be able to do that as, as a payroll and for me it was more important to represent my constituents and represent what I want to do and change than being a deputy chairman so I'd asked the chief whip back in September look you know I want to step down it wasn't a huge like I need to go now but I said look, when there's the next uh, reshuffle I want to step down. I'd had a few health issues with my thyroid, so, so that, that wasn't helping the situation as well. So I just thought it was time. I, ne- I couldn't do everything, so I stepped down as deputy chairman. So when the um, when the reshuffle came in November, I just went. And it wasn't a big deal. I don't think many well, people knew. It was such
0: knew. a big deal, I didn't notice. Well, exactly, nobody noticed it. So, <laughs> so, so and
3: that's the whole point, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I don't, you, know, so was, you
0: don't get... You're, you, although you've been paid, you don't get the upside of being a minister and being in the Commons and all of that, but you yeah. are... On the paywall, I have to, to go. Toe, I have to go line. on
3: GB News yeah. and, and and LBC and, and Times and, Radio, and and justify and justify things, and now I still do, but I don't have to always.
0: You'd have to be quite so positive, yeah. Uh, Nikki, let's turn our attention to some of your bosses. We ask everyone of all parties who's done this. I've had a few to sum up their former bosses in a word. So you came in in 2019 under Boris Johnson. Mm. Sum up Boris Johnson in a word.
3: Chaotic, probably, and and you know that. <laughs> i think the thing about boris and i hope history will be more kinder to him because you know he did get some of the big issues right he did get the vaccine program up and running and he saw that from the very beginning that we were only going to get out of Covid with a vaccine and he pushed that forward and um, got the right people dealing with that he got Ukraine right he was absolutely right on Ukraine and we have to keep supporting Ukraine and I do fear you know the West are starting to tire and we have got to keep going and supporting Ukraine but the thing about Boris is he is so charismatic and he does reach many voters that other politicians don't reach but i just don't think he ever had the temperament and the right people around him from the beginning i think if he had had the people he had towards the end around him and he and you know he was a, he was a brilliant mayor he was a brilliant mayor because David Cameron and George Osborne knew exactly what he would be like and so ensured that he had the right people around him like my former leader Simon Milton and then Eddie Lister and other people who were basically running City Hall and he was the frontman that is what he should have had in number 10 and I think he would have been probably with the right people managing him Mm. I think he could have been an outstanding Prime Minister sadly he just didn't have the right people and you know, That's you, ultimately his fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, exactly, exactly. And you have to accept that. And, you know, he, he just basically brought the Leave campaign with him. And, you know, the Conservative Party, as we all say, is a broad church, Matt. And, um, you know, you had to have people... It was about the Conservative government yeah. and the Conservative Party. It wasn't about Leave. And I think, if, I think we'd have had a lot more of success. And then, obviously, we had COVID and... Who would have expected, you know, a a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic to hit us, hit the world? And that meant that a lot of the things that we had hoped to do... I remember sitting in Parliament in February 2020, listening to Boris make a speech. And I sat there and I thought, oh my goodness, we are going to change this country for the better. We are going to be in power for 10 years and we are going to do some great things. Little did I know that a month later... Covid was going to hit and then but Do
0: you not think that actually if it hadn't been Covid and Partygate there'd have been something else it was just in his temperament in his nature that surrounding himself with people who you know didn't have necessarily his best interests at heart Yeah only told him what he wanted to hear because he didn't want to hear any, you know it yeah. was in his nature if it wasn't if it <laughs> bluntly if it wasn't lying about Partygate it'd probably been lying about something else
3: Well he does have a bit of a reputation of um, you know I always said he always treated the party like his wife, wife, and treated the economy like his own personal <laughs> finances. Like, but look, I, I just think he got us elected, mm. and he got us elected in seats that we hadn't held in a hundred years. Mm. So th- you have There's to give him, there, yeah. you have to give him the credit yeah. um, for that, for, for for bringing in a wave of voters. And I, and I think he was right when he said that they lent us their vote. Which they did.
6: And do you think they're about um, to take it back? Well,
3: let's see. Let's see. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't see much. To be honest, there's not much enthusiasm for Labour. Let's be honest. I well, mean, apart if you, from you see, from a
0: 20, 25 point lead in the polls and winning but by I elections. Think that's, in every yeah, part but the then look at
3: the by-elections, Matt. Look at look at the vote. The vote, they're not voting for Labour. They're just not voting for us. Look at. Look at that's look at, that's look how at, you win elections. Yeah, but look at Kingswood. I mean, there's, there's yeah. no enthusiasm. It was like 100 votes more than 2019. Yeah. That is not a Tony Blair landslide. And believe me, I was there in 96, <laughs> 97. I was working in central office. I've been in the Conservative Party all my adult life. I've been in it for 36 years. So I've been there, done yeah. that, seen it all. And this is not Tony Blair.
0: Well, let's, let's not worry about Tony Blair. Let's talk about some of your other bosses. Let's sum up. Uh, so Boris Johnson was chaotic, Liz Truss, in a word.
3: Overpromoted. <laughs>
0: so, so do you think is that the fault of, of David Cameron Theresa May that she shouldn't have been in cabinet jobs from which she could launch her leadership?
3: I just think that I'm sure. Look, I don't I, look. I don't really know Liz to be honest. I've never really. I've had a couple of conversations with her, but I've never really been part of mm. that team. Mm. So, but I just I don't think she was ever prime minister material.
0: So why is it then that the Tory party twice put people who weren't really Prime Minister material into the job of being Prime Minister?
3: Well, you see, when well, you talk about Boris, Boris, yeah. Boris could have been a... Mm. I mean, you know, he did have the attributes for communication, for being able to... I mean, he could he could see the bigger picture. He did see the vaccine programme, he did see Ukraine, um, and he did make the right calls at that right time. But on the day-to-day, I mean, being prime minister, I couldn't think of anything worse, to be honest, than being prime minister. (laughs) I mean, it is a tough gig. And that's why I honestly worry about the possibility of Keir Starmer. He's not showing the grip and the gut instinct and the the attributes that you need to be prime minister. You need to be able to just go ahead and not flip-flop, not Mm. change your mind. And I think with, with Boris... He had the potential to be a great prime yeah. minister if he'd had the right people around him. Liz, I don't think. Liz was, you know, uh, everything Rishi warned in the leadership contest came true about her economic plan. Mm. I'm remortgaging at the moment. Thanks, Liz. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> How much it's, more are
0: you paying as a result of his chance?
3: Uh, a couple of hundred pounds a month. Yeah. Um, we should and, ask her for that back. She yeah, exactly. Use some of her American yeah. money.
0: Yeah. So, over-promoted. Rishi Sunak in a word.
3: Honourable. Honourable. Yeah, I mean, you know, what really annoys me about the criticism that he gets is that they say he's too rich to care, he's too rich to understand. You know, you could flip it the other way and say, well, why does he need to do this? He doesn't need to do this. And he does. And the hours he puts in, I mean you know he is and he's so on the detail he's he, he i mean he's such an impressive man I'm, i first met him in 2017 when i was lead of the council westminster council and he was local government minister and i walked in because i wanted to change council tax banding and he he knew exactly all the detail even then as in his first job and he does care he is determined to improve things and again it's uh, it's always events, isn't it? It's always events that get you in the end. It's
0: events and colleagues. I mean, what's your message to your <laughs> your colleagues yeah. who who seem addicted to the move in Prime Ministers?
3: Yeah, look, I was there in the nineties and several of my colleagues were there in the nineties and you just think, haven't you learnt? And we saw it with Labour, you know, in twenty fifteen and beyond when they were not as united as they should have been under Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. The public want to see unified parties working together for the for the for the good greater good of the country which is absolutely right whether it's labor or or the conservatives and i would say that if we don't unite if we don't get behind the prime minister and the cabinet and this conservative government the alternative is socialism and keir starmer is no tony blair tony blair was a social democrat in my view he also inherited a booming Economy was it like about four percent growth? Well,
0: there's no danger of him doing well, that. Well, really. houses flatlining. Yeah. Whatever
3: we're doing, and it's not just flatlining in the in the UK. It's flatlining across the world. If you look at what's going on in Europe and France and Germany, you know they're, they're having strikes in France and Germany like never before. Um, so it's not just a UK issue. It is it is European wide, uh, and we are bucking the trend in, in some parts of the economy. But do we really want to hand over? Uh, an economy that is having green shoots, but is not there yet, to a socialist government. I, know, I don't be, think so, really much. People
0: listening to this, Nikki, and they'll be thinking, you've been in government <laughs> for 14 years. Yes, I get that. You know, a lot of money was spent during Covid, the economic mess of Liz Truss, we're in a recession. The idea that the Conservative Party can lecture anyone on economic competence is quite a tough sell. Yeah,
3: and I absolutely accept that. I take that on the chin. I absolutely accept that. But... We now have, we're now talking about the future, yeah. whatever happened in the past. And let's remember how much money we did borrow for COVID. And the Labour Party backed us. I mean, the Labour Party would have probably had us in lockdown for longer if they had been in charge. I think we should have been out earlier. I certainly don't think we should have locked down our schools a second time. And I think that's, that is something that's going to live with us mm. for a generation or two. I see it, you know, for my children's generation. But we have got to think about the future, that is, that is what this next election is about. Not about the last five years, 10 years, 14 years. It's about the next five, the next 10. And absolutely, I get that the Conservatives have uh, not covered ourselves in glory, but I think it's about what, what we plan to do in the future. And, and, it's, and Matt, socialism is never the answer as far as I'm concerned.
0: Okay, let's do some classic exit interview questions then. Would you recommend your job? To a friend or someone you cared about,
3: it, I think it depends on the person's personality. This is not for uh, the for people who take things personally. You've got to be a bit tough. You've got to be able to communicate. You've got to be able to listen to people. An MP, I think, is a mixture of you know being a legislator and, and a campaigner and a social worker and a psychiatrist sometimes as well. Um, we are often. The person's first port of call and a person's last port of call. And when they come to us at the, as the last port of call, they are very, very desperate. And I've had some, uh, you know, some heartbreaking stories of people who have just been let down by the by the system. But it's tough, and you know, you you don't get thanked. And I'm not saying we should ever get thanked. We don't go. You don't go into politics. Well, you shouldn't go into politics to make money or to be thanked. But you only ever really hear the negatives, which I think is, is fine. I didn't go in it to make you know. To, to, to get applauded but I do think that you have to be of a certain personality but if you have got the fight in you if you have got the time and it's all encompassing your family you will not see your family I'm lucky I live mm. in my constituency 24-7 I don't have to travel down to the you know to Cornwall or to Scotland or to the north of England or to the north of Wales which can take hours uh, so I'm there I'm there I go home every night but if you don't it can be very lonely it, I, I think it can and I yeah. think that's when You know, some MPs get themselves into some situations that they might not do.
0: (laughs) That's a very good good euphemism. So you've you've explained the reason you're standing down. Alex Aitken, of course, is a long-standing Cabinet Office communications chief. He's got this new job in the UAE. So that's why you're leaving. So what will you do next? Would you ever, ever come back to politics?
3: The only job I would like left in politics, if I had the opportunity, is to be Mayor of London. Because I think this is a fantastic city and I think it's being let down at the moment. And I did think really hard about standing this year, but I just felt as an MP in a general election year, it wasn't... You know, a very positive, strong message to give to my constituents. Actually, I'm going to try to become Mayor of London first, and if I don't, I'll stand again. That is not what you should be doing as an MP. Your first job is to be the Member of Parliament for your constituency. So I decided not to stand for Mayor this year. But, you know, in 20- 20... Do
0: you think you'd have done a better job than Susan Hall?
3: Look, I think she's she's working it hard. I mean, I think Sadiq is the Labour Mayor who keeps just keeps on giving, and all that ridiculous stuff on the overground last week. You know, that we have got young people being murdered on our streets Uh, we've got knife crime out of control we've got shoplifting we've got street robberies out of control in this this city and he's renaming railway lines i mean it's like i think we need to get our plans in place our strategy in place to basically make this city a, a a great city again hey that's a great that's a that's a really good that's a really what, good saying. Make London great again. That's
0: a bit a bit Trumpy.
3: Maybe, yeah. <laughs> you can get on a
0: baseball cap. I'm
3: not sure. I'm... So, what
0: would that be? 2028. 20... Eight.
3: Who knows what I'll doing? Look, I didn't think, I... if you'd asked me three months ago <laughs> where I'd be living in six months' time, I'd have been saying Westminster. So, who knows? But that's the only job. That's my unfinished business, Matt. I think I'd like to be mayor of London.
0: Uh, advice for your successor,
3: whoever ne- it is. Whoever it somebody is.
0: Somebody going into Westminster for the first time.
3: The best advice I can give is just make friends. Make friends on all sides of, of, of the chamber. I've got some great friends in the Labour Party. I'm really lucky that, because I've been in the Conservative Party since I was 19, my life is actually sitting on the back benches and the front benches. I mean, I've got Robert Buckland and, and Simon Hall introduced me to my husband. Robert Halfon and Sajid Javid got me into the Conservative Party in the first place in, the, in, in, in university so I'm, I was really lucky when I actually got there. I had a I had a solid base of friends already. But you do need your friends. You need your friends for that gallows humour. And believe me, we've had gallows humour no, 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 in the last four years. Yeah. Believe me. <laughs> um, you do need people to, to just let off steam with and to just rant at and to have a laugh with. So you do need to make friends. And never forget, at the end of the day, never forget your first job as an MP, is to represent your constituents. It's not about your political career. It's not about go, going up the ministerial greasy pole. It is about representing your your constituents and, and keeping the promises that you made to get elected in the first place.
0: Well, Nikki, I get some top advice there. Conservative MP for Cities of London and Westminster, standing down at the next election. Thanks for joining us for your exit interview.
3: Thank you. I don't want to see the but you
0: Kin's exit interview. There, if you want to listen back to any of the others, we've got another twelve available for you to listen to. Just search for the exit interviews wherever you're listening to politics without the boring bits. That's all, though, on today's episode for me, Matt Jolly. It's goodbye.
4: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.